Okay, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved, behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts and the, of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at a place some distance away. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerithites and the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the desert. Zadok was there too and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
They set down the ark of God, and Abathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do with do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Aren't you a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your sons Ahimaaz and, jo- and Jonathan, son of Abathar. You and Abathar take your two sons with you. I will wait at the fords in the desert until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the Arachite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimahaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So David's friend Hushai arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. Well done, Jason. Thank you, brother. Uh, you're six to eight heading off for their Bible teaching time. Um, by the way, if uh, you're new or visiting, I want to add my warm welcome to that of uh, Bertie. I'm really glad you're here. My name is Ben. I have the great joy of pastoring uh, our evening congregation and also opening the Word of God here regularly. Keep your Bibles open. 2 Samuel 15, I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your Word, the Bible. Please help us to concentrate, to set aside hindrances and distractions, that we will be built up into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, It was on a Friday, the 3rd of April in the year 33 AD, on a small hill just outside the northwestern boundary of then Roman-occupied Jerusalem, that three men suffered the horrible form of execution we know as crucifixion. The idea was that any non-Roman citizen who was found guilty of a crime uh, that was deemed to challenge the authority or the legitimacy or the supremacy of Rome and its its government uh, would suffer a long, very public, very painful, very bloody, very humiliating death. Death to those who would dare defy Rome. And that was a very public statement. Uh, Of the three men crucified on that particular day, the one in the centre was, of course, Jesus of Nazareth whose opponents had argued he claimed to be the king of the Jews and and therefore it it kind of suggested he could be an insurrectionist, possibly the kind of person that would attempt a coup against the Romans. We don't know the names of the two victims that were placed either side of Jesus, their names have been lost to history, but we do know some of the things that they said. 
One of them, we know, joined in with the crowd who hurled insults at Jesus. But the other, as he looked at Jesus, said something so radically astounding that it absolutely defies belief. It's, it's, it's one of those parts of the Bible that makes you realise no one would have made this stuff up. It actually had to have happened. Uh, he, he looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I know as Christians who are probably familiar with this, we kind of, oh yeah, whatever, but familiarity can, uh, can make it difficult to realise just how astounding this thing was that this guy said to Jesus. Why on earth did that criminal think that a guy who's severely beaten and bloody and stark naked and humiliated and straining for breath and frankly about to die, why did he think that that guy was somehow soon to be enthroned as a king, that he would come into his kingdom? You think about it, you'd be hard pressed to think of anyone uh, in any situation who could actually be further from coming into their kingdom. How did that criminal, who had probably, to be economic with his words, the last few words he could have, how did he in that moment arrive at that astonishing conclusion that Jesus would yet come into his kingdom? Well, a significant part of the answer has to do with what God's going to teach us today from a series of events that took place around a thousand years before Jesus, but that was written down ultimately for those who are now members of the kingdom that Jesus did most certainly establish. As we come to this next part of the story in 2 Samuel, we learn, first of all, of the betrayal of King David. To refresh your memory, or if you haven't been here in recent weeks, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen on account of David's spectacular sins that uh, strife and discord within his family have begun to set in and affect his reign. His eldest son, Amnon, has raped one of his daughters, Tamar. It's a horrible chapter. And though furious, David did not bring about justice. And another of David's sons, namely Absalom, eventually killed Amnon for vengeance, yes, but also, and probably more so, to pave the way for him, Absalom, to have a path to becoming the next king. Last week, we saw a failed attempt at, at getting a reconciliation between David and, and Absalom. Uh, you remember uh, Joab, David's commander, tried to get them back together, didn't really work. And now this week, as we've just heard, Absalom shows his true colours and he makes a play for his father's throne. And the first thing he does is to play the charming, flattering politician and to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. He gets an entourage of people and a chariot and gets his bling and he makes sure that he intercepts all the people that are coming to David for a ruling and then he flatters those people, verse 3, by saying, Absalom would, look, uh, would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. But he'd also disappoint them, second half of the verse, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And then, of course, just at the right moment of, of flattering and mildly disappointing, he'd make them feel really good. Verse 4, and Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then... Everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see, I would see that they receive justice. 
He doesn't say, if only I were king, because that would be too obvious and it'll give the game away. But he says enough to put the idea in people's heads that he really should have a higher position. And he does so in a way that implies that David is kind of letting Israel down by not enabling justice to be done, which happens to be partly true. Absalom's actions simultaneously put him in the good books and kind of put David in the bad. And to make sure that that seed is then firmly planted, he seals the betrayal with a kiss. Not very original. Verse 5, also, whenever anyone approached him uh, to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. That's a very Jewish way of showing affection, in case you didn't know that, right? For us, it's weird. But for them, that's, oh, what a nice guy, right? He kissed me. Verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. No, he stole their hearts. Isn't that nice? Uh, By the way, uh, if uh, a leader, especially a Christian leader, uh, involved in the ministry of the word, only ever always seems to make you feel really good with everything they say it's probably right to be a little bit sceptical. And it's very awkward for me to say this because here I am, a Christian leader who speaks the word of God. And I kind of hope that you like everything I have to say. But if you've got someone who always, only ever seems to make you feel really good and really happy, you've got to start to worry. they more about popularity than they are about truth. It's a good thing to keep in the, the back of the head. Anyway, now with his popularity in place... Absalom begins his plot of betrayal with a brilliantly crafted lie. Verse 7, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said to him, rather ironically, go in peace. And so he went to Hebron. Now, like all good lies, this one has great elements of truth. Absalom, as we know, was in Geshur uh, as an exile. And so he probably did long to get out. He, He might have even made a vow to the Lord about getting out. That's possible. And it also so happens that he had been born in Hebron. And so that place probably holds some special significance for him, the kind of place that you might choose to to offer to worship the Lord should he uh, rescue you from a certain uh, calamity. But of course, you and I, as we read it, we know this is all a big fat lie. Uh, If you can remember just a couple of weeks ago, chapter 13, Absalom's done this kind of thing before. He'd asked David to come to this party he was throwing for a bunch of sheep shearers, he knew full well that David wouldn't come. He was too busy or it was beneath him or whatever. And, but that's what he wanted because then afterwards he said, well, David, you're not going to come. Can you send uh, Amnon? That would be nice. And so David was like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll send Amnon uh, to the sheep shearing party. But of course, it was deliberately done so that Absalom would have opportunity to murder Amnon. And that's exactly what happened. And so now, as Absalom heads to Hebron which is not only the city of his birth, but also, incidentally, the first city in which David had been proclaimed king, Absalom gets an innocent renter crowd, along with a whole bunch of followers, to whom he says, guys, when I give the signal, a whole lot of trumpets, 
basically proclaim everywhere that I'm now the king. And that's exactly what happens. And to really seal the deal, verse 12, while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Uh, We're going to learn later on that Ahithophel uh, is not only an excellent advisor, but that it's likely, get this, that Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba which means that he's probably not too happy with David, given what David has done to his granddaughter and his once grandson-in-law, who David had murdered. And so I reckon Ahithophel is like, you know what, I'm happy to get off Team David and to get on Team Absalom. Absalom probably knows that, which is why it's a really good move. And with that... Absalom's coup is set in motion, the betrayal has begun, and he is such a legitimate threat that David now knows he needs to run. And so the next thing we see after the betrayal of the king is really the departure of the king, point two. David is convinced, and for good reason, that Absalom would probably kill his own father in order to become king. Verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And yes, that means death. Given what Absalom has done thus far, I reckon David's probably right. He's at least right to be cautious. His officials tell him that they're ready to do whatever he's going to choose to do, and so David decides to leave the palace and leave the city. And throughout the chapter, there's lots to emphasise how sad and how humiliating this departure really is. When we remember that David first entered Jerusalem... It was actually as a conquering king. People thought there's no way this guy's going to be able to take Jerusalem and bang, he does it. And that's where he kind of has his kingship established, we're told, uh, back in the beginning of 2 Samuel. And once we kind of remember that, well, it helps us appreciate how difficult it must have been for him now as he departs to then pause at the, the city limits and verse 18 to watch as all his men marched past him along with all the Kerithites and the Pelethites and all 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath, they all marched before the king. And to add to the sadness, verse 23, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. And then again, the sadness gets even more compounded when we realise that for David, there's an element of symbolically, it's important I use that word, there's an element of him symbolically being parted from the presence of God. Uh, You might remember that the Ark of the Covenant, that special box, was the thing that kind of represents God's presence among his people in Israel. And we read in verse 25, Then the king said to Zadok, one of the priests, Take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place. Again, so David symbolically is being parted from the presence of God and even more so, he's kind of 
forced to put himself in the hands of God, solely into the will of God. The next verse, 26, um, but if God says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And so David's departure involves the symbolic leaving of God's presence and committing his life solely to the will of God. And if we're thinking that God has so ordained these events and these words uh, about this departure so that it looks like it anticipates what Jesus would later endure, then I think we're absolutely right. In fact, in verse 30, we learn that David... Uh, in this sad departure, continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. And yes, that's the same Mount of Olives that Jesus went to in sorrow and anguish on the count of the fact that the wheels for his own demise had, had recently been set in motion. Uh, Jesus would put his life in the hands of his heavenly Father and in his case would find himself forsaken by God. And uh, I hope you know that that the reason for that was, was to pay for the sin that's in your heart and mine, the, the sin that makes you and I every bit as guilty as David and as, uh, as Absalom. But apart from the sadness during the king's departure, there's something else that the writer really wants to highlight for us during uh, this, this exodus. Put simply, it's that even foreigners who have no significant attachment to Israel's king end up following David even as he leaves behind his place of power and authority. Uh, we see this in that little incident involving the guy who, in my humble opinion, has one of the coolest names in the Bible, Ittai the Gittite. And by the way, a direct application of the Word of God is someone here needs to start a punk rock band just so they can call it Ittai the Gittite. Please do that, won't you? Uh, um, Insight into the juvenile mind of Ben, I kind of like to think that when he was really naughty as a kid and his mum was angry at him, she just called him It the Git. <laughs> Once you've heard it, you'll never unhear it or unthink it. Anyway, verse 19, the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner, an exile from your own homeland. You came only yesterday hyperbole he'd been there a while but you came only yesterday and today shall I make you wonder about with us when I do not know where I'm going go back and take your people with you may the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness basically Ittai is the the leader the representative of a bunch of foreigners who who, who probably served as part of David's royal palace guard possibly because as foreigners they they wouldn't have a, a, much of a stake in the in the political interests of, of Israel good kind of people to have around you they were under no obligation to serve David as king and uh, especially as he's now dethroned and going into exile. And so David said to them, hey fellas, no hard feelings if, if you guys want to go and, and serve the new king. This isn't, you know, not, not your monkeys, not your circus kind of thing. Verse 21, but Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives... And as my Lord the King lives, whether my, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. Uh, by the way, if you happen to be familiar with the book of Ruth, beautiful book in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you might notice that the way Ittai sticks with David 
as David endures hardship, sounds kind of similar to the way that, remember, Ruth stuck with Naomi, even though she was enduring uh, literally bitterness, she called it. But because Naomi knew the God of Israel and was, and, and was, I suppose, by her actions, trusting in him, things ended up turning out really good for Ruth. And in the same way, we'll soon find out that things will turn out pretty good for the Gittites because even as he's departing, David has a very good hunch that he will yet return to power, so much so that he's actually been planning for the time when he will come back. We saw it as early as verse 16, where it says that David left 10 concubines to take care of the palace. And uh, spoiler alert, sorry who was ever preaching next week, but spoiler alert, that becomes something that uh, Absalom uses against David, and it's kind of horrible, but we'll see that next week. But more than that, David organises for a number of informants to feign loyalty to Absalom, whilst all the while working for him. Those informers include the priests, the people responsible for handling the Ark of the Covenant of God, and therefore those you'd associate with those who kind of uphold and even reflect the will of God. And so from verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? He's, he's just told him before this to, to go back, but he, he, he's telling him again, but he's now saying, do you understand? Oh, there's a bit more to this deal, Zadok. Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahamaz with you and also Abiathar's son, Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So he's got informants putting them in place. Uh, another of David's informants who will feign loyalty to Absalom will also be charged with the task of frustrating the advice of Absalom's new advisor, Ahithophel. His name was Hushai, and David says to Hushai, return to the city and say to Absalom, your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be your servant. Then you can help me, says David, by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. And if you want to cheat and read ahead, this guy does a brilliant job of his task, by the way. Anyway, you put this all together and you see that David has left concubines to look after his palace, that he's left the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem to which he hopes to return and he has set informants in place to keep him up to date on what's going on and he has infiltrated Absalom's ranks with the purpose of seeing him fail. Although David departs humiliated, and into the hands of God, he yet suspects that he will return in power. Perhaps David knew, perhaps he'd been told by someone what Hannah the prophet, remember Hannah all the way back from the beginning of 1 Samuel? What she had prophesied when she said, it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, that is the power or the strength, of his anointed, which David is. And perhaps even more strikingly, that's what the criminal on the cross knew as he looked at God's perfectly innocent servant Jesus, the descendant of David, and reasoned that somehow God must confirm him as the one chosen to rule 
over God's kingdom. He somehow must give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But back to the story at hand. How on earth should David's betrayal and departure and plan of return impact you and I this side of the cross? Uh, I've got to admit, this one took me a while. It took me a while to break this one this week. This is a wonderful story. But I spent a lot of time thinking, what's, what's this here for, for us, for, for me here this side of the cross? It's true that David and Absalom are both pretty much as sinful as each other. You remember this whole unravelling is because of David's horrendous crimes. But it's when you look at the differences to how they approach power that you start to see the vital lesson that I think 2 Samuel 15 is teaching us. You see, Absalom very clearly, very conspicuously is grasping at power. Whereas David very clearly is not. He sits very loosely to it. Absalom in all likelihood, and according to David, would probably kill his father if it meant he would become more powerful. David, flawed as he is, was not so tied to his position that he couldn't up and leave and place himself into the hands of God. David is still the man chosen according to God's own heart and he's as quick to give up his place of authority as Absalom is to take it. It's very telling that in the very last verse, Hushai makes it back just as Absalom is already entering the city. And it's in this way that David prefigures God's ultimate chosen king, Jesus, in that whilst Absalom would kill in order to grasp at what he thought was his rightful place, Jesus would give up his rightful place of power in order to be killed. What was true of David, a little pale thing, is even more true of the reality that we see in Jesus. God's anointed king does not grasp at power. He instead, and we see this in David as a pale reflection of where we really see it in Jesus, he entrusts himself to God who brings down the proud but who lifts up the humble. As it was with David and as it certainly was with our King Jesus, so it ought to be also with us. It's those who humble themselves that God will lift up. The king we now follow would not grasp at power, but would entrust himself to God, even when it included death and God-forsakenness. In his case, he has now been raised up and vindicated, and given the name that is above every name, the reality is that it's only a matter of time till every knee on earth and heaven and earth will, will, will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the meantime, you and I have the immense privilege of following in his footsteps. We walk behind him, so to speak, and therefore we're right to make a practice of humility, a practice of sitting loose to, to our own power and authority, knowing that God is the one who lifts up in due time. And in the famous words of C.S. Lewis that I've personally come to appreciate more and more over time, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's a worthy quote to know and memorise this one because it's profound and true. And the more you realise that God is into doing what's sufficient and necessary for you, the less you need to look to yourself and your own resources and abilities. 
A really good way to train in humility is just to keep thinking about what it meant for Jesus to serve you and to serve me. I know we are servants of Jesus, and that's, a, that's an honour and privilege, but we are far more served by him than we serve him. The Son of Man came uh, to serve and give his life as a ransom for, for many. How did it feel for Jesus to become incarnate, to live in obedience to his heavenly Father and die a criminal's death very unfairly on a cross? And how did he feel doing that in the full knowledge that he'd be calling you personally into his kingdom? By the way, if it happens to be the case that you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not yet a Christian, one of the biggest barriers to becoming a Christian is actually not a lack of information. You stick around this church for three, four weeks, you will know enough to become a follower of Jesus. That's not the barrier. The barrier is the fact that there's basically no way of entering God's kingdom without taking a serious hit to your pride. There's kind of no easy way around this. You need to realise that Jesus so graciously meets your deepest need of forgiveness and reconciliation to God that to embrace that must mean losing your sense of self-sufficiency. I remember personally, I went through this myself. I was 19 when I became a follower of Jesus. And I remember that I I knew that saying yes to God also had to mean admitting that I'd been wrong for a long time. I knew what my non-Christian friends and my family would think about me making that decision. And that's just got to hurt. But if ever there's been a case of no pain, no gain... It would be humbly turning back to God and making Jesus Christ your Lord and Saviour. Do it today because tomorrow might be too late. Finally, one of the verses in today's passage that I think rightly applies quite directly, it it, it happens every now and then. You can actually, rare, but you can just lift something right out of the Old Testament and apply it directly to us this side of the cross. It's rare, it does happen. One, One of the verses I think you can do that with... Uh, as, as followers of Jesus, is verse 15, where it says, The king's officials answered David, Your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. Their past experience had taught them that King David was worth following. They had been blessed under the flawed leadership of God's king, David. And so even though the the going was about to get really tough, they reasoned that, well, it made sense to continue trusting and serving him. Well, how much more for us who worship the perfectly sinless, perfectly loving and perfectly understanding King Jesus, who has the power to raise you and I to new life, and he will, and who even though he is now enthroned at God's right hand in heaven, yet suffers with us in our times of hardship. Now, if you do happen right at this very point to be going through great hardship, then you have my blessing, nay, my encouragement to to put a pretty strong filter on what I'm about to say. There are things from God's word that, whilst absolutely true, are not necessarily always helpful for someone who's right in the thick of, of suffering. But that said, I'm not speaking to you individuals, I'm speaking to us generally as as a group and and I would say in all confidence that Jesus never promises that his followers won't face hardship, won't, 
He never promises we won't even face extreme hardship and suffering. As a matter of fact, for most Christians, it's normal to suffer in all sorts of ways as we follow the one who was familiar with suffering. But it's equally true that Jesus is no less close to us as we suffer. And that whilst part of what makes suffering really bad is that you often won't know the reason for it. Whilst that is true, that you often won't know the reason for it. We do know the God who knows the reason. That's always the case for Christians. Often the thing that makes suffering really suck is that often you won't know the reason. But you can know the God who knows the reason. And we are right. We are absolutely right to hold firm to Christ. We are right to remain obedient to Christ, to serve him even when the places he chooses for us to go involve great hardship. Jesus, to put it simply, does not have fair weather followers. It's one of the reasons why mature Christians will gather week in, week out. We don't just sort of drift in and out of church because we, it doesn't matter if it's hard or it's easy, we're going to fellowship around the Word of God because we're the kind of people who are not fair weather followers. But it's a really good thing that Jesus does not have fair weather followers. Because those who follow him through thick and thin are those who, albeit in the future, will celebrate that they did. For they will be vindicated as he is, as David was, as Jesus is, and as we will be. Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you teach us about him through your servant David and through his being dethroned and yet returning, as we'll see later in power. May we be like the servants of David who would follow him wherever he chooses to go. May you enable us to follow Jesus wherever Jesus will take us. For those of us who are in the thick of suffering and difficulty for whom following Jesus can be very trying and testing, Please, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, help us to persevere, uh, help us to continue to trust his goodness and kindness and love, to delight in the fact that Jesus knows and understands exactly where we are in terms of our suffering. And Heavenly Father, I pray for any among us who as yet don't know this wonderful King, this King who came to serve. I pray that it will please you to turn them in repentance and faith, uh, that they would repent before it's too late and stand firm on the last day when we see, and the whole world sees, that Jesus truly is vindicated. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.